Hey everybody, welcome to the Compass Church. My name is Jake, one of the pastors here, and just want to take a moment to welcome you as we are kicking off our brand new sermon series called Origins. We're going to get ready to study the beginnings of the book of Ezra to learn about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And what I'm most excited about is to welcome back our senior pastor, Jeff Griffin, who's fresh off of his study break and ready to go. So without further ado, let's kick this series off together. Good to be with you again. A huge hello to everybody at the Compass Church. Thinking of those at the Naperville campus, South Naperville, Wheaton, Bolingbrook, Three Rivers campus, and everybody online. Great to be back. I just finished my study break in the month of July. And as always, it was just fantastic. I just got to say thank you to the elder board that extends this study break to me and to all of our guest preachers who did a fantastic job. You know, it's, it's a time for me to just relax for one, and it's good for my soul, and seek God regarding uh, my life and our church life and develop series. It's really amazing. In the month of July, I wrote the main idea of the entire year, every series, every message. Just last week, I was working on Mother's Day. Isn't that crazy? But it makes me so excited about the year ahead. Friends, we've got great stuff. The Lord, Lord willing, is going to do so much in us, so much through us to make this world a better place through the power of Jesus Christ. That's what we're all about. And I just am really looking forward to the coming year. So much good time with family. We got a vacation. It was just a wonderful study break. And so I'm excited. What a great job. Huh? I can't wait to come back. And our new series called Origins just thrills me. Uh, maybe my wife tells me that this whole series is because I'm a five on the Enneagram scale, which means I am endlessly curious about how things came to be. And if that's the case, if I'm inflicting my personality type on you in this origin series, my apologies. But I, I just am. I, I want to know how did it come about? All the beautiful things in life. What's the origin of it? Coca-Cola, for example. Where did Coke come from? Do you know? Back in 1886, a guy by the name of John Pemberton, he was a pharmacist in Atlanta, he was trying to find a medication that would help with pain relief. And he was experimenting, honestly, just mixing stuff together. And he stumbled upon this syrup that was a combination of the extract of the coca leaf and the cola bean, Coca-Cola. And uh, unfortunately, this syrup did nothing for pain relief. But when you mix it with carbonated water, bingo, magic. Oh, friends, together we thank God for John Pemberton and the origins of Coca-Cola. Isn't that fascinating? Or, uh, for example, the donut. 
if you ever asked yourself, what's the origin of the donut? Friends, it goes back to a little town called Glencove, Maine, and a guy by the name of Hanson Gregory back in 1846. Hanson was a sea captain, and uh, before he took his crew out on a long voyage, they had a special celebration, and he would make breakfast for them, and one of the delights were these baked, or deep fried, not baked, deep fried cake balls, and the guys would go nuts over them. They're like, oh, no, this is so good, but Gregory noticed that they ate around, but always threw away the inner core. The center of these cake balls was raw. The dough wouldn't bake. And he's like, man, there's got to be a better way. And an idea came to him. He rushed inside. He got a pepper shaker, an old tin pepper shaker. And he took off the top and he dumped out the pepper and he stamped the cake ball, cutting out the middle. And when he deep fried it, Bingo! Praise God for Hanson Gregory, huh? Origins. Friends, it's so much fun. Everything that's beautiful, every God story has got a beginning. It's got an origin. How about the Compass Church? You ever wondered about our church origin? Friends, uh, we are celebrating the 70-year anniversary of our church. In fact, this series, Origins, is in part just that, a celebration and a commemoration and a thanksgiving to God for the 70 years he has given us. Friends, did you ever wonder about the origins of our church, the Compass Church? Well, I do. I wonder endlessly. And anytime I can get information, it's pure treasure to me. And I was talking with a good friend of mine, Dominic Sela. Dom is 99 years old. He's been a part of the Compass Church from nearly the beginning. And he told me, Jeff, the, the guy that God used to start the Compass Church was a carpenter named Carl Gunderson. Dom said, I've actually got some of Carl's notes on how the church started. I'm like, give them to me. And friends, I had so much fun reading. Carl Gunderson, I'm actually at his house right now. I am at the home that Carl Gunderson built back in 1950. Carl immigrated from Norway, started building houses, lived in Chicago most of his life, but later in his career, he and his wife Val moved to Wheaton. They found this vacant lot and built this beautiful home. And they would have some of their Chicago friends come see them in Wheaton. And when one friend from their Evangelical Free Church, you may not be aware, we are part of the denomination called the Evangelical Free Church. And Carl, being a Norwegian, he had grown up in the Free Church. And when he came to Wheaton near one of his friends from that Free Church came to visit and said, Carl, how do you like Wheaton? And he's like, oh, Wheaton's fantastic. And the friend asked, I assume you're attending the Free Church in Wheaton. And Carol explained, believe it or not, there is no free church in Wheaton. And the friend said to Carol, Carol, why don't you start one? He thought that was the dumbest idea he had ever heard. He's like, I'm no pastor, I'm just a home builder. And the friend said, okay, well. A few weeks later, another friend from Chicago came and asked the same question. Carol, why don't you start an evangelical free church in Wheaton? 
Once again, Carol's like, what are you talking? Someone else mentioned that to me. I'm, I don't know how to start a church. Well, it was a little later in a third conversation right here when a guy by the name of Bob Van Campen, a Wheaton resident and a friend of Carl's, they were talking and Bob said, Carl, if you were to start an evangelical free church, I'd join that church. And Carl was like, what is going on here? Uh, Bob Van Campen was a Dutch Baptist. And Carl was like, if a Dutch Baptist is willing to join an evangelical free church, if I start it, maybe this is of God. And he and his wife, Val, they started praying. They started talking. And as they prayed, have you ever felt this? There was a stirring of their heart, this growing sense of conviction that this crazy idea was, in fact, a God idea. And that conviction built to the point that Val and Carl said, let's give it a try. And so it was right here that they started a home-based Bible study once a week, Bob Van Campen, his wife, and some other neighbors came over for a Bible study. That was back in the fall of 1951. And as that Bible study grew, Carl cast a vision to them and said, what would you guys think if we tried to turn this Bible study into a church? And friends, the whole group was on board. They said, let's find ourselves a pastor, let's hire him, and let's do it. And so it was in February of 1952, that's 70 years ago, that the Evangelical Free Church of Wheaton, which became the mother church of Naperville, which became the mother church of Bolingbrook and South Naperville and Three Rivers and friends, it all began with an origin story. Again, every God story has an origin. And every origin involves a person who senses the stirring of God in their heart and they step forward in obedience. Are there going to be God stories in your life? Stories about your family doing something awesome or about your career or about ministry at church or about marriage. If there's going to be God stories in your life, you've got to get good at the origin part, the initiative demonstrated in sensing the stirring of God. That's exactly what we're studying in this new series called Origins. And we're gonna learn from the book of Ezra. As much as anything, we want you to know that here at the Compass Church that we are here for you, whenever that means. That could look like you have something going on in your life right now that you just need someone to pray with you for. We would love to do that with you. All you have to do is fill out that online connection card. Go to thecompass.net slash connection card. You'll find a link in the show notes and fill out a little bit of information with your prayer requests. Our staff and team would be honored to pray for you and your specific needs this coming week. Now, with that being said, let's hear the end of this first message of our origin series together from our senior pastor, Jeff Griffin. So the first part of the book of Ezra is about the origins of the second temple. That would have been the temple in Jerusalem that Jesus saw. Remember, Jesus frequented the temple. He was there as an infant and as an adolescent and as an adult. 
And I like to imagine Jesus contemplating the origins of the temple. Pretty sure that uh, Jesus was a five on the Enneagram scale, don't you think? Yeah, well, anyways, as he was saying, well, you know, how did it all start, this temple? What's so fun is that the book of Ezra that we're about to study together, or at least the first half of the book, focuses on the origins of the second temple. Let's take a look, shall we? Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy that he had given through Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet. Sure enough, Jeremiah the prophet had predicted that though the temple had been destroyed in Jeremiah's day, that God was going to restore, rebuild the temple. Maybe I should explain. Uh, king of Persia. You should know that the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is the year that Persia took over the empire. Before that, it had been the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, they are the ones who destroyed Jerusalem. Knocked the temple down, burned the city. It was devastating. Nebuchadnezzar carried the Jews off into exile. That's what we call that, the Babylonian captivity or exile. And it lasted 50 years. And uh, it was just devastating for these Jewish people to see everything that they loved and dreamed of just seem to come to a nightmarish end. But the Babylonians only ruled for this 50-year period when the Persians conquered them and took over. And as we're about to see, this new king, new emperor, Cyrus, he has a very different posture towards the Jews than the Babylonians did. In fact, it says he fulfilled the prophecy of rebuilding the temple. Now, I, I should clarify that the temple that uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, that was the first temple built by Solomon, and that one lasted approximately 400 years or four centuries. This second temple that's about to be built is going to last 600 years or six centuries. Now, I should tell you that though it started here in the days of the book of Ezra, uh, it was renovated by Herod, Herod the Great in Jesus' day. So the temple, the second temple that Jesus saw would have been vastly improved. Uh, the temple courtyards were expanded under Herod's command and the temple proper was refurbished and made even more stunningly beautiful, but it was still called the second temple. And so it's the second temple that were the origins of the second temple. We're actually going to look at uh, five weeks. We're going to be studying how was it that the second temple came about. And so shall we? Let's turn to the second part of verse one. It says this. The Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it out throughout his kingdom. And here's the proclamation. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me, Cyrus is speaking here, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem. This is fascinating. 
Cyrus, not a believer, I'm convinced, but a seeker, one who was intrigued by spiritual realities and sensitive to the intervention of the divine, of God. And what does it say of him? It says, the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus. I just love this terminology. You know, when you get a coffee and you put your cream or your sugar in it, we stir it up to mix it all up. And that's the concept of what God is doing in Cyrus's heart. He's stirring up, making him, I'm going to use this word, agitation. Sometimes we need to be agitated by God. To agitate means literally to stir up. But God can agitate our heart, stir up our heart to get us to do what he wants us to do. In the case of Carl Gunderson and the founding of the Compass Church, he and his wife Val, they were agitated in a sacred way by God. They couldn't get rid of this idea of starting a church. And so Cyrus couldn't get rid of this idea that God, the God of the Hebrews, wanted him to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. But lest we think that the idea just popped into his head, I'm convinced from these verses I just read that he had influence, uh, uh, scripture influencing him. You say, scripture, yeah. One of the things you should know from the book of Daniel, we discover that Daniel, who had been a high-ranking government official during the Babylonian era, now a very old man, but Daniel started serving Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, as a government official. And having access to Cyrus, we can guess, it is speculation, but we can guess that it was Daniel who made Cyrus aware of Jeremiah's prophecy about the rebuilding of the temple. It's fascinating. When you go back to Jeremiah's prophecy, what we find is that God actually predicted the name of Cyrus, that there would be a future ruler by the name of Cyrus who would rebuild the temple. Why am I so confident that Cyrus was aware of the prophecies regarding him? I'll tell you why. Remember when it says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth? That's exactly what the prophecy said. It says that there'll be a ruler named Cyrus and God will give him all the kingdoms of the earth and God will call him to rebuild the temple. Can't you imagine Daniel bringing the prophecy and saying, hey buddy, you'll be interested in this. Your name was prophesied over a century before you were born in our prophetic writings that you would be given by God great victory, in fact, establishing a Persian empire, and that God will use you to rebuild his temple. I can imagine Cyrus looking at this going, I can't believe you knew my name, and you're telling me that my unprecedented military victory arriving at domination over all nations, that your God was behind, and that's why I was so victorious? He, he looked at the circumstances of his life. He looked at scripture. And these observations added to the stirring or agitation of God resulted in his conviction, I got to rebuild the temple. Two, two points I want to make. God tends to use 
observation and agitation. He uses them together. What, What I mean by that is when God wants to move his people in a direction, he gives them circumstances to observe. For Cyrus, it was observing the scripture and his unprecedented victory and saying, wow, I think that's not coincidence, but providence. We observe things and then we're feeling things. You know, the observation is when we see things, evidence of God at work in our lives. And then the agitation is when we feel things, the stirring of God's spirit within. Observation, agitation. That formula is what God used to move Cyrus to rebuild the temple. And it's what he'll use in us to move us to do what he wants us to do. Let me uh, read on, shall we? It says in verse 3, this is a continuation of the proclamation of Cyrus. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Uh, Cyrus is saying, any Jews who want to go, you can go. You're free to go back to your homeland and rebuild the temple. Friends, this is amazing. Under Babylonian rule, they were captives. They were in prison, if you will, exiles. But under Cyrus, the king of Persia, they're given freedom to return home. Now, one-sixth of the uh, exiles returned home. Five-sixths remained in Babylon. I know that's hard for us to imagine, but the truth is they did well in Babylon. Fifty years have passed, so most of the people have been born and were raised in Babylon. It's all they know. They've got businesses and houses and Jerusalems and ruins. And so most are like, hey, I'm good. I'll just stay right here. But one-sixth said, let's do it. And they returned. Friends, this is the first wave of return to Jerusalem. I should clarify. There are three waves of return. In fact, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, though two books in our Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, truth is they were one book originally. They've been separated in the later day. It was the Ezra-Nehemiah account. And that one book has three waves in it. The first, and that's the one we're going to study, the first wave is led by a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. We're going to learn a lot about Zerubbabel. And that's found in the first six chapters of Ezra. The later chapters of Ezra are the second wave of return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And that is actually 70 years after Zerubbabel. So a lot of time passes between the first part of Ezra and the second part of Ezra. The third wave is under Nehemiah. And then that's in the book of Nehemiah. The the, the first wave under Zerubbabel, the objective was to rebuild the temple. The second wave under Ezra, the objective was religious reform. And the third wave under Nehemiah, the objective was rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. This series is about the first wave, led by Zerubbabel with the rebuilding of the temple. All right, turning now to verse 5. It says, Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. So when Cyrus gives the proclamation, anybody who wants to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple is invited to do so. 
It says the first ones who were stirred by God, not only did God stir or agitate the heart of Cyrus, he also stirred the hearts here of the Levites and the priests. These are the guys who are supposed to work in the temple. So their job is to work in the temple. They felt more than anybody else the absence of the temple because they're kind of job description without a place to carry it out. And so these leaders were stirred. The whole formula of observation, agitation took place in them. What did they observe? The same prophecies that Cyrus read, but they observed the unthinkable, delightful proclamation of Cyrus that he said, go ahead. They were like, is this coincidence? No, this is providence. The emperor has invited us to go home. This is an observation we must make note of because it's the hand of God. But in addition to observation, they felt agitation, the stirring of God's spirit saying, do it. And they did it. But not only the leaders, we also see in verse 1, here I'm reading Ezra 2, verse 1. It says, now these are the people who came up from the captivity of the exiles and returned to Jerusalem in the company with Zerubbabel. There's our leader. Uh, these are the people. Uh, chapter 2 is largely a list of those who in, were part of the first wave of return to Jerusalem. And uh, what about these people? Did God stir their heart? What, what about Zerubbabel? Can we assume that they too experienced the agitation of the Lord? We can know that's the case because of the prophet Haggai. Haggai wrote in chapter 1 of his book, Haggai 1.14, we read, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of the whole remnant of people, that is, those who went. And they, be, they came and they began to work on the house of the Lord. Sure enough, what, what did these people, what did Zerubbabel experience? Observing the dynamic that's happening with the uh, king's edict and God moving in the hearts of the priests. And this seems to be a fulfillment of the prophecy. But in addition to observation of what God was providentially doing, they felt the stir, the agitation of the Spirit of God within, nudging them, go, do this great work. When I talk about the combination of observing the circumstances that seem to have divine fingerprints in it, and the agitation, feeling the movement of God's Spirit within, this combination, observation, agitation, reminds me of what God does is kind of like a pool cue. And the pool cue is such a simple tool, isn't it? It's just a straight stick. But it does a combination of things. If you've ever played the game of pool, you will know that you take this and you very carefully aim it. And what does the pool cue do? It creates movement. It takes that which was stationary and gets it moving. But more than that, it gets it moving in the right direction. In fact, that's the key. You aim it just right to ensure that it's in the perfect direction. That's what God does with observation, agitation. He not only motivates us to move, 
but he's showing us where to go, what to do. He's revealing his will for us and getting that which was complacent now on the move in his direction. Oh, friends, it's such a beautiful thing. It's how origins of God's stories come about. And I hope you experience much of the observation agitation of the Lord. It can be big things in your life. Like I, I think of our, Jen and I, when we adopted, it was observation agitation. When I came to the Compass Church to be a pastor here, observation of what God was doing, agitation, stirring of the Spirit. It can be little things within your parenting journey. I say little things. Any God thing is a big thing, but here's an example. I've got a friend who uh, was at work, and suddenly in the middle of a meeting, his cell phone uh, starts buzzing, and he sees it's his son who was a freshman at the University of Illinois. And he thought, that's weird. My son never calls me during a work day. And he told his uh, coworkers in the meeting, he's like, I got to take this call. And he stepped out, and his son was despondent. His son had just flunked a major test. And his son, truthfully, had been partying hard and was irresponsible and struggling with alcohol. And his son just said, Dad, I'm flunking out. What am I going to do? And his son was vulnerable on the phone. And this friend of mine tried to encourage his son as best he was able. But when he hung up the phone, before he reentered the meeting, he had just, Lord, he prayed, what's going on here? My boy reached out to me, which is great, but he's doing very poorly, which is bad. I think this is a divine moment. And as he's observing what's happening, God, by his spirit, starts stirring him to do something rather extreme. He walked back into the meeting and he said, I'm taking a personal day. And he left and he hopped in his car and he drove down to Champaign, a three-hour drive. Shows up at the dorm of his son and he calls him and he says, hey, I'm, I'm taking you out for an early dinner. And his son's like, what do you mean? He goes, I'm outside your dorm, come join me. And his son was shocked, went down. And the two of them found a restaurant and they had the most profound conversation of this father-son relationship. The son just confided of all the mistakes he was making and the struggles he was having. And dad was so gracious and loving but was able to step into spiritual vision for this young man and say, listen, God has better plans for you. You're not following the Lord right now. And you're tasting the fruit of that decision. Son, if you will start to lean into God, I tell you the Lord will make your life beautiful. And that young man hurt his dad, maybe at a level he had never had before. And that young man turned back to Christ and is today flourishing in the Lord and would point to that dinner together with his dad as the defining moment in his spiritual journey. What did it all start with? A dad who was observing observation and agitation and obeying what he sensed God was calling him to do. Isn't that beautiful? Last week... I, I was at another church, you know, it was the last week of my uh, study break, and we actually got a little vacation time and went uh, down south, and we attended a small African-American church, and it was so much fun to worship the Lord with these brothers and sisters we had never met before. 
After the service, I started talking to this one guy, and he was telling me more about his church. <laughs> a little humbling. Uh, you know, we're celebrating. We are 70 years old. This guy tells me his church is 300 years old. It was back in the colonial days before our nation was a nation. And he said, we were the first church of slaves in this region. He goes, I got to tell you how it all started. He said, it all started in Germany. I'm like, what? He's like, no kidding. It started in Germany. He said, a slave from our community was brought over the Atlantic with his master to Germany. And while he was on the journey, the two-month journey sailing across the Atlantic, he heard the gospel for the first time, and this slave became a Christian. Upon arriving in Germany, this slave met two German Christians, young men at a church. And this new believer, a black guy, shared with these two uh, German Christians, his testimony. They, they wanted to hear, tell me, how did you become a believer? And he shared that he had never heard the gospel in the U.S. And they were like, what? There are Christians there. And this man went on to explain, in my community, it is outlawed to share the good news of Jesus Christ with an African-American. And they were like, you're kidding me. He went on to explain. He goes, one of my friends, a friend who's a slave, he took, uh, drove the carriage of the master's family to church. And while he was sitting, waiting for church service to end, he went up to the door and wanted to hear what this Christianity was all about. He was caught listening to the church service. His slave master was so upset that he cut off his ears on the steps of the church. These two guys in Germany just wanted to vomit. They were like, this is Christianity? This is horrible. These two young Germans, let me tell you their names. Uh, a, a, a young guy in his mid-20s by the name of Leonard Dober. He was a potter, made pottery. And David Nishman, uh, a carpenter. Th they were the ones who heard, and they were so stirred. They observed through the testimony of this slave what was going on in this community. And they were so stirred that they said, we, we got to go. These guys who had never been more than 15 minutes away from their little village in Germany said, we're going to go. We're going to find this community and we're going to reach the slaves there with the gospel. And that's exactly what they did. They were the founders of this church that's been thriving for 300 years. At one point, the church had a revival where a thousand slaves came to faith in Christ. Friends, God has used this formula of observation, agitation, again and again and again. May he do it in you. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I just thank you so much for what you did with the Zerubbabel and the priests and King Cyrus and the people, the way you moved them to action. Would you do it in us? Keep our eyes looking for your providential hand. May we observe. And God, keep our hearts sensitive to the stirring, the agitation 
of your spirit within us. And may we have the guts to obey when we sense you calling us to a great adventure. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's a great kickoff to our brand new sermon series, Origins. You know, before you go, we want to let you know that there are lots of people that are committed to the cause of Jesus here at the Compass Church. And one of the ways they show that, one of the ways they help people find and follow God is through giving of their financial gifts. If you would like to join in that partnership, simply go to thecompass.net slash give. Again, there's a link for that in the show notes below as well. This is a very simple and tangible way for you to partner with us here at the Compass Church as all of us together strive to make an impact for Jesus here, near, and far. I'm already excited about what's coming up next week as we continue our sermon series. So look forward to having you then here at the Compass Church.